This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for July 27, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. From the Shah of Iran's rise to power in the early 1940s to the hostage crisis, which kept 52 Americans held captive for 444 days during the Jimmy Carter administration, and now the future of that Iran nuclear deal. How can we best understand Iran, its government, and our shared history? On C-SPAN's The Weekly Podcast, we're joined by Aman Majadiar of the Middle East Institute. He walks us through the nearly 80 years of U.S.-Iranian history, from the Shah to the Ayatollah and the current president, Iranian leader Hassan Rouhani. He explains how the U.S. relationship reached this point and what's next moving forward. We attach great importance to our relationship with Iran, as well as to the uh, uh, crucial role that Iran plays for the security and balance of this entire region. From July 1976, then-Secretary of State Henry Kissinger during the Ford administration, Ahmed Majadiar is with the Middle East Institute. And I want to begin with this question from Presidents Roosevelt to Carter. Why did the Shah of Iran play such a pivotal key role in that part of the world? The strategic location of Iran at the heart of the Persian Gulf and also the geopolitical developments in the region and also at the international level uh, made Iran strategically very much important for the United States. First of all, uh, the United States wanted Iran to ally with it uh, in the uh, World War II, and later also uh, Iran became a pillar of the regional alliance that the United States supported uh, during the Cold War against the Soviet Union. In trying to better understand relations with Iran, let's understand the Shah. How did he rise to power in the early 1940s, and what role did he play with U.S. presidents? Uh, the Shah uh, became, uh, came to power in Iran uh, just years before the start of World War II. Uh, so that was a very uh, uh, pivotal moment uh, inside Iran and also in the region. Uh, soon after that, Iran had uh, democratic elections. And uh, at that time, uh, then uh, Mohammad Mossadegh was the first elected uh, prime minister of Iran. That Later, he was deposed by uh, the CIA and the British intelligence agencies. Uh, so he ruled Iran for... Uh, until 1979, Islamic Revolution. Uh, and he came to power after his father, who was also king, abdicated uh, because he was old and also because of the major geopolitical developments in the region. And of course, over the years, the Shah, a frequent visitor to the U.S., his first visit during the Truman administration. Here is President Harry Truman. Your Majesty, I am happy to welcome you to the United States on this, your first visit here. I've looked forward to Your Majesty's visit with great pleasure, and I trust that during its course you may have the opportunity of becoming well acquainted with our country. I trust, too, that we may have the opportunity of acquiring through Your Majesty a better knowledge of Iran, its heritage of greatness and culture, and the courage and far-sightedness with which present-day Iran is led by Your Majesty is facing the problems of the modern world. Our two countries were partners in the struggle against fascism. The traditional friendship which bound us together during those troubled times has grown even stronger in the years since the war. 
His visit in the aftermath of World War II under the comments of President Harry Truman, here's what the Shah said. We shall likewise be privileged, I trust, to work with the United States in the maintenance of peace in the Middle East and in the achievement of liberty and prosperity as the aim of all freedom-loving people. The Shah of Iran, his first visit during the Truman administration here in the United States, for nearly four decades, he maintained control of the Iranian government. How did he do that? Uh, the Shah of Iran, uh, he uh, inherited uh, a government structure from his, his father, uh, so that also helped him. And also after the uh, end of the World War II, uh, the Soviet Union briefly invaded Iran. So that was one reason that brought Iran closer to the United States. The Shah wanted very uh, uh, strategic alliance with the United States as a deterrence against any further uh, Soviet expansion inside the Iranian territory. Uh, and later also uh, then Iran became a uh, pillar of uh, the uh, U.S.-led alliance against the Cold War. Uh, but uh, although uh, the Shah uh, wanted to implement Western-style uh, liberalization and e economic de uh, uh, development plans, uh, but after all, he was an autocrat. So that was the reason that uh, there was dissent against his rule was increasing that ultimately led to the 1979 uh, revolution. Based on that, though, from the early 1940s until the late 1970s, how did the country change? How did it evolve? The, the country changed uh, uh, dramatically because uh, the Shah's alliance with the United States helped uh, Iran both uh, to bring some economic reforms. Uh, uh, the Shah was able to modernize the Iranian economy. And also, the Shah was also able to modernize the Iranian uh, military. And Iran at that time became a major military power in the region. Uh, but uh, he wanted to, in the last year, just before he was uh, overthrown, he wanted to uh, make Iran a European state, in his own words. Uh, but unfortunately, then the revolution happened, and he could not uh, further expand his modernization and reform uh, programs after that. I want to come back to that revolution in just a moment. But Democrats and Republicans over the years have seemed to agree that they needed the Shah. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, there was a, bi a bipartisan consensus here in the United States that they needed the Shah for regional stability as well as uh, to counter the Soviet Union. And during this period, can you give us a sense of what relations were like between Iran and its neighbors, most notably Israel? Uh, Iran and Israel had very friendly and very close relations uh, at that time. And uh, indeed, in many of uh, the geopolitical problems that Iran had, the Israeli intelligence agency was uh, helping, uh, helping the Shah. Uh, but there were uh, some... Uh, dissent growing against uh, uh, the close relations between Iran and Israel uh, because uh, the Israelis were also suspected of having played a role in the 1953 overthrow of the uh, elected government of uh, Iran. Uh, and of course, then after the 1979 revolution, then uh, Iran became the arch enemy of Israel in the region.
And the Shah also faced a number of assassination threats, did he not? He did. Yeah, he did. Uh, he did. Not only him, but also members of his family, uh, both before the revolution when he was uh, the monarch and also after that they left the, uh, left the country, in, uh, both in Europe and different parts of the world. Another U.S. president, another year, 1961, President John Kennedy, as he welcomed the Shah to the United States. Your Majesties, I speak on behalf of all of my fellow Americans in welcoming you to the United States. The interest of both of us is the same, to maintain our freedom, to maintain our peace, and to provide a better life for our people. President Kennedy in 1961. So based on that, how did the Shah approach different U.S. presidents? How did he negotiate, form relationships, and work with these presidents? The Shah had very close relationship with all successive U.S. presidents, so, uh, with uh, President Truman, with President Kennedy, and particularly with President Carter, because uh, during the uh, in the in his last year, President Carter, for example, visited Iran and described Iran as a pillar of stability in the region. Uh, it's interesting because that that was a very famous comment, and then later Iran became the axis of evil during the Bush uh, administration. So that shows that significant shift that the United States saw Iran as a key pillar of stability in the region, and then later that became the axis of evil. Based on that, then, how can we best understand what Iran was like under the Shah? What do we need to know in order to understand Iran today? There is a mixed picture because the Shah brought some uh, significant reforms in terms of women's rights and in terms of economic mod- uh, modernization, but at the uh, but at the same time, he had a very repressive uh, uh, intelligence network, uh, which was uh, uh, very oppressive to the Iranian people, and that was one reason that uh, people, a vast majority of the uh, Iranians, supported the revolution. Let's remember that Iran right now is a theocracy, but the Islamic Revolution was not just supported by. Islamic revolutionaries. They were initially supported by the leftist organizations, by centrist political parties, because they had uh, become very disillusioned with the autocratic uh, policies of the Shah at that time. We're talking with Ahmed Majadiar. He is with the Middle East Institute, serving as a senior fellow and director of the Iran Observed Project. You mentioned President Jimmy Carter because human rights was a key part of his foreign policy. Were there human rights issues in Iran? Yeah, absolutely, because as I mentioned, human rights uh, conditions uh, were not very good inside Iran. And because uh, President Jimmy Carter had made, as you mentioned, human rights uh, a core a campaign message, uh, then that message was not uh, had not gone unnoticed inside Iran. So as soon as J- uh, J- uh, Jimmy Carter became president here, the Shah preempted that, and he brought some... Uh, uh, liberalization and also human rights reforms in the country. And the Europeans at that time, they were supporting them and helping them on that front as well. In just a moment, we're going to hear a, an excerpt from an ABC News story from November of 1979 uh, as the hostage crisis was beginning to unfold. But how did Iran reach that point? Give us a sense of what was happening in the spring, summer, and early fall of 1979. Uh the founder of the uh, Islamic uh, Republic and also the, the Iran's revolution, Grand Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, uh, he had been planning for the revolution for 
uh, years uh, from his uh, place in France and also when he was uh, he lived inside Iran. So he had all, all, already built a very vast network inside Iran. And when he returned then, uh, because of the discontent of the people against the Shah, then different uh, people from all walks of uh, life, they uh, joined his revolution because they wanted to put an end to the dictatorship and wanted to bring back an, a democratic system uh, uh, to Iran. And let's also remember that Ruhollah Khomeini had promised everybody that he would not seek power. Of course, he did not honor that pledge, and he became the supreme leader after the revolution and then sidelined all other parties except those who were loyal to him. But initially, people had a different picture of Iran after the Shah. Why then, if you can explain the hold he had on his people in the late 1970s and something that actually continues in 2018? He was a cleric. He was a very charismatic and very good uh, uh, speech, uh, very good at giving speeches. So he uh, could rally people very easily. He knew the uh, Iranian people's grievances. And when he talked to the Iranian people, he talked in their language. And that resonated very well with the people, with, uh, with the different walks of life. And as I mentioned before, for, uh, first when Ruhollah Khomeini went to Iran, his message was different. He wanted to uh, take power from the Shah and give it to the people. But of course, then he took all the power to himself. The Shah was battling cancer and President Carter weighing whether or not to allow him to come to the U.S. for treatment. Ultimately, he did. How pivotal was that? That was a very pivotal moment in the U.S. and Iran relations uh, because uh, the Iranian revolutionaries, including Ruhollah Khomeini, they demanded that the U.S. return Shah uh, to Iran so that he can stand trial and most likely he, will, uh, he would face execution. And when the U.S. government refused that, then uh, uh, they declared some kind of war. And one of the reasons that the uh, hostage-taking uh, taking uh, incident took place in November of 1979 was the reason the United States did not return uh, the Shah. Initially, the revolutionaries and Ayatollah Khomeini didn't know about this. So they took over uh, the Iranian, uh, the uh, American embassy, and they wanted to put pressure on the U.S. government to return the Shah. But once the Shah did not return, and that incident also became an international uh, uh, phenomenon, then they tried. To, uh, they then they decided to just uh, prolong that incident. And later, then uh, Khomeini, because uh, those students who had uh, taken the American diplomats hostage were his base, uh, the base of his support. Then he also lent support to that. From November 1979, courtesy ABC News. This flag was apparently taken from someone's office inside the United States Embassy. It was burned Tuesday evening outside the embassy's gates. To the Iranian demonstrators who set fire to it, this was a symbol of victory. Two days earlier, several hundred young people, mainly students at Tehran University, had taken over the embassy. We are not occupiers, they said. We have thrown out the occupiers. But instead of chasing all the Americans out of the compound, the Iranians imprisoned them in a building somewhere on these grounds. They have been hostages ever since. From November 1979, and of course the hostage crisis would continue until January 20th, 1981, when Ronald Reagan was sworn in as our 40th president. But as you can hear the sound of the anger from those Iranian students, why? What were they so upset about? 
because those students, they were calling the uh, American embassy in Tehran the den of spies. Uh, they had, uh, in their, uh, own, according to their own claim, had discovered some documents that showed that the American embassy in Tehran had collaborated with CIA in the overthrow of uh, the Mossadegh government in the 1950s. Uh, so they feared that unless they seized the American embassy, the American embassy could plot something against the uh, newly uh, established uh, revolutionary government uh, in Iran. Uh, so that was one reason that they took uh, took the hostage. And another reason was, of course, that they were angry that the United States were not uh, uh, sending Shah back to Iran. And, of course, President Jimmy Carter serving only one term. He largely blamed the Iranian hostage crisis for his defeat in 1980. After leaving the White House, he reflected on what impact it had on his presidency and what he did or did not do. Here's President Carter. Well, I could have been reelected if I had taken military action against Iran. It would have shown that I was strong and resolute and, and um, manly and so forth. But uh, I think if I, I could have wiped Iran off the map with the weapons that we had. Uh, but in the process, a lot of innocent people would have been killed, probably including you know, hostages. And so I stood up against all that, uh, all that advice. And then eventually my prayers were answered and every hostage came home safe and free. And so I think I made the right decision in retrospect, but it was not easy at the time. As you reflect on what President Carter said after leaving the White House, what are you hearing? Well, uh, yeah, he's right that uh, the U.S. could have taken a military action against uh, Iran at that time. But let's also remember that President Carter did actually allow a rescue mission, which went uh, uh, disastrously wrong. Uh, and uh, one U.S. helicopter collapsed and several uh, people on board were killed. So that rescue mission failed. And that was the reason then he was reluctant to uh, allow any other rescue mission to take place. And the hostage-taking uh, crisis uh, continued for 444 days, which of course consumed a lot of his time here in the uh, during his administration. Let's turn to some of the more recent headlines. If you talk to the people of Iran, not the government, not the Ayatollah, how do they view the U.S., the average citizen, generally speaking? Uh, you would uh, see mixed reactions because uh, many Iranians still uh, blame the United States for the overthrow of their uh, elected government in the 1950s. Uh, and also they uh, blame the United States for siding with Iraq in the 1980s uh, in the war, uh, which lasted eight years and killed about half a million Iranians. Uh, so they still harbor that anger, that frustration, that resentment. They do, because uh, people in the Middle East and South Asia, the um, uh, history is present for them. It's, uh, here. Most Americans just live in prison, but people there live in the past. So they do harbor those resentment from that time. And also over the past four decades, we see that the Islamic Republic uh, leaders, uh, they've been uh, blaming the United States and its allies for all the sociopolitical problems that Iran has. But what's interesting is that lately we see that that kind of uh, propaganda and rhetoric from the Iranian leaders uh, they lose support amongst the Iranian people because they now blame more their own leaders for the mismanagement and the corruption for their problems, not the United States or the rest of the world. The U.S. and our allies in Europe putting together an agreement led by Secretary of State John Kerry at the time between Iran and the Western world. 
How significant was that for Iran? And, and what did the country get from the U.S. and Europe? It was very significant for Iran because when President Rouhani first time ran for elections, uh, improving relations with the West and also lifting the U.S. sanctions uh, and also potentially reaching a deal over the nuclear issue with the United States and uh, Europeans was the core message of his campaign. And that was the reason that also that a vast majority of Iranians voted for him because they had been suffering because of the crippling sanctions uh, imposed on Iran, uh, particularly during the uh, um, Obama administration. Uh, so they wanted change, and uh, President Rouhani delivered that. Of course, he uh, signed a nuclear agreement with the United States, the European powers, plus China and Russia. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, although the sanctions were lifted in January 2016, but much of uh, the economic growth happened in the energy sector, and uh, that did not trickle down to the purchasing power and the uh, uh, living conditions of ordinary Iranians. So that's why right uh, in the second, uh, uh, in, during his second term, then people had become disillusioned with the uh, uh, Rouhani's approach of rapprochement with the West because they were saying that the nuclear deal actually had not benefited us at all. In July 2015, President Obama sitting down with the New York Times and had this to say. We have cut off every pathway for Iran to develop a nuclear weapon. The reason we were able to unify the world community around the most effective sanctions regime we've ever set up, a sanction regime that crippled the Iranian economy and ultimately brought them to the table, was because the world agreed with us that it would be a great danger to the region, to our allies, to the world, if Iran possessed a nuclear weapon. We did not have that kind of global consensus around the notion that Iran can't enjoy any nuclear power whatsoever. President Barack Obama with The New York Times in a conversation with Tom Friedman. But as you listen to that, as soon as the deal was agreed to here in Washington, Republicans saying it was a, a terrible deal, a bad deal. Why? Let's first of all credit President Obama to uh, bring together international consensus on the Iranian nuclear issue. And it was the international support for the sanctions regime uh, imposed by the United States and the rest of the world that brought Iran to the negotiating table. That's something that we are lacking right now. But I wouldn't agree um, completely with the president saying that the deal uh, completely uh, ended all pathways for Iran to acquire nuclear weapons. Although the deal uh, limited Iran's nuclear uh, activities, but the deal had sunset provisions, uh, meaning that some of the limitations or most of the limitations on Iran nuclear activities would be lifted in one decade. So that would provide Iran, according to some, a patient pathway to acquiring nuclear uh, weapons uh, in the future. And that was one of the main criticism of the Republicans here. Uh, however, when the uh, Trump administration wanted to withdraw from the Iran deal, even those strong critics of uh, President Obama did not want uh, the president to leave unilaterally because they believed that that would isolate the United States and also there is not a viable alternative to limit Iran's nuclear activities should Iran decide to leave the deal. Which is what happened with the United States leaving the deal. Are we isolated? Uh, 
Right now, uh, the major European powers, China and Russia, uh, they did not support the uh, U.S. withdrawal from the uh, nuclear deal, and they are working with Iran to salvage uh, the nuclear deal. Uh, it would be a little bit difficult because uh, once the sanctions uh, come back uh, next month, uh, major banks and companies around the world would be very reluctant to do business inside Iran. Uh, French company Total and many other European companies have already uh, left Iran uh, because, because, because of the U.S. sanctions. And other even mid-level uh, companies would not rest their bigger share in the American market and subject themselves to U.S. penalties because of a much smaller market share in, in Iran. We are conducting this conversation in the C-SPAN radio studios on Capitol Hill, and I mention that because if you walk just two blocks, you're on the west front of the U.S. Capitol. In the summer of 2016, Kennedy Donald Trump had this to say about the Iran nuclear deal. I've been doing deals for a long time. I've been making lots of wonderful deals, great deals. That's what I do. Never, ever, ever in my life have I seen any transaction so incompetently negotiated as our deal with Iran. And I mean never. As you hear candidate Trump and now President Trump go after Iran, what's the future of relations between our two countries? I think that in the future we'll see more uh, confrontation rather than cooperation between the United States and Iran. Because after the withdrawal of uh, the United States from the nuclear deal, uh, tension has been heightening between the two countries. Uh, we see a war of wars between leaders of the two countries, and also we see that tension in the region, particularly in the war zones like Syria and Iraq, uh, between the U.S. military and also the uh, Iranian-led uh, militia forces, is also building up. And on the other hand, also we see a very tense situation between the Iranian forces and also the Israelis in Syria as well. Uh, Recently, Iran has also threatened that if the United States cut all the oil uh, exports uh, of Iran, then Iran would resort to shutting uh, off the uh, Strait of Hormuz, uh, which is a very strategic uh, transit line for the global oil shipments. Uh, about nearly uh, one-third of the world's uh, crude oil uh, passes through that. So if Iran, for example... Uh, resort to such uh, provocations, uh, that would uh, result in a very dangerous uh, escalation between United States and Iran in the region. I believe that neither side wants to go to war, but overreaction, miscalculations uh, could result in a situation and could trigger a chain of events that would be out of the control of uh, either side. Let me conclude on that point then, just how serious, how real of a threat is Iran to the U.S.? Uh, one of the reasons that over the past 40 years, uh, the two countries have not been able to improve their relations is that the two countries have very divergent policies uh, in the region. Uh, the uh, Iranian government, they support a very wide network of uh, Shiite militia forces and also militant forces across the region. Many of them defied the military, uh, U.S. military in the region and also are acting against the U.S. allies. So as, as long as this uh, divergence of interests and policies continue, it would be difficult to see any time relations anytime soon. How can people follow you to get more information on this topic? 
Uh, at, at the Middle East Institute, uh, I ran a project which is called Iran Observed, and the project uh, provides daily tracking and analysis of Iranian activities and policies in the region, as well as Iran's domestic issues, and also uh, Iran's relations with the United States. What makes this project dif different from other work being done in Washington is al almost all of our work is derived from the Farsi and Arabic uh, sources in the region. So that uh, gives our readers uh, a very good understanding of how the Iranians and the rest of the region think about things, uh, about the developments in the region. Ahmed Majadiyar, he is with the Middle East Institute. We thank you for stopping by. It was a pleasure to be with you. And by the way, we thank you for listening to this episode of C-SPAN's The Weekly. You can check out all of them on the free C-SPAN radio app, online anytime at cspan.org, and wherever you download your favorite podcast. <laughs>